Okay, today is January the 25th, 2011. It's hard for me still to say 2011. We're nearly already through with the first month of that year. Hard to recognize that. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the opportunity to rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness in providing for all our needs. It doesn't matter whether it's just another day. We still have to go through the daily grind. We have some like Sherry who is facing the charge of the elephant. We pray that You will be with her and Bob, the entire family, and that She will know that She has a barrage of prayer coming up from Country Bible Church. She is in our thoughts and in our prayers. And we pray that you will help her to have everything done that's necessary in order for her to regain her strength and be well again. We pray that you will help us this evening to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. While what happened in Arizona is still fresh in our minds, I received a an email had to do the the name of it is only two short paragraphs. The Arizona shootings, gun violence research, and the facts versus the New York Times. I'm not going to even quote the New York Times, but I will give you what a, a few facts. Of all the multiple victim shootings around the country in public schools, on city streets, churches, or in malls that have been stopped by law-abiding citizens with concealed handguns, none, not a single one, has resulted in innocent bystanders being shot. None. Zero. Indeed, rarely do the citizens with the concealed handguns actually pull the trigger. Simply brandishing the gun stops the attack. Permit holders do not endanger others. The other paragraph in this says, Take Arizona, since that is where all the focus is. As of December 1, 2007, there were 99,370 active permits. During 2007... 33 permits were revoked for any reason at a rate of 0.03%. That is, That means that the permits that were revoked were three-tenths of 1% of the people who were issued permits. And none of those uh, permits involved cases where a gun where a gun was used to harm others. And this is true in the state 
<coughs> excuse me, in state after state between October 1st, 1987 and December 31st, 2010, Florida issued permits to 1.9 million people. 168 permit holders had their permits revoked for any firearms-related violation at a rate of 0.009%. That's nine-hundredths of one percent of the firearms were revoked. And it doesn't say, but I surmise that no one was harmed by those either. It's nice to hear facts for a change and not the withering barrage of nonsense and emotionalism that we hear. One other thing. I have a whole lot of things to give you, and I'm just giving you a couple for tonight. In the recent issue of the Israel My Glory magazine, in the news section, there's a short article. It's entitled, UN Declares Rachel's Tomb a Mosque. The United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization that you may not have heard of by the name that we call UNESCO has officially voted to declare Rachel's tomb to be a mosque. It also calls for Rachel's tomb and the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, the burial site of the other biblical patriarchs and matriarchs, to be removed from Israel's national heritage list. Palestinian authority claims Rachel's tomb is holy to Muslims as a site of the Bilal bin Rabah mosque and demands control over both the tomb and the tomb of the patriarchs as well as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Israel announced it will suspend cooperation with UNESCO. It says essentially UNESCO has become a rubber stamp for the Palestinian Authority. UN organization responsible for heritage has turned heritage into politics. And then we have a Knesset member, Arya Elad, called UNESCO's decisions hypocritical and anti-Semitic. He said, Islam is trying to rob the past and falsify the future. And then he says, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, who was, whose name God changed to Israel. She was buried more than 2,300 years before Islam even came into existence. And that's how much sense all of that makes. By the way, I heard tonight on the news that Hezbollah has taken over the government of Lebanon that it has officially taken charge of Lebanon. And, of course, Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. It's a puppet of Iran. And that's just another, um, that's more bad news. But we don't wring our hands because we know that God is the protector and the provider of his people in Israel. And I've said it many times. Israel isn't going anywhere. It's not going to leave and come back and start over again. So that makes it very interesting, doesn't it? Okay. <clears throat> Let's get to our, uh, our Bibles. Let's turn to 
Second Thessalonians chapter one. It's been a while since we got into the verse by verse aspect of it because we had spent some time on the second advent, the stages of events. We were looking at it in detail. But now we're going to we, by the way, we've only done nine verses of Second Thessalonians, so let's just start with verse one, at least read up to verse nine and ten. Second Thessalonians chapter one. Paul and Silvanus, that would be Silas and Timothy, to the church at Thessalonica, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice always we have grace before peace. No grace, no peace. Verse 3. We might always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. I want you to underline that. I didn't do that before, but that is going to be in conjunction with verse 10 of what we're going to be studying tonight. that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What's that talking about? That's talking about the second advent. It's after this uh, 7, 8, and 9 after these scriptures that we did a detailed analysis on the second advent. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for, that, for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling. There you go, underline that part. See again, counting you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. I guess we'll go ahead and finish it with verse 12. We won't get to verse 12 tonight. But in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that kind of brings us back to speed. We're going to start tonight with the second part of verse 9. 
those who are Christ-haters, grace-haters, are going to see Jesus Christ as their judge, not as their Savior, and they will be away from the presence of the Lord. This is in verse 9b. Away from the presence. The word presence in the Greek is prosopon. I should say prosopon. It's omega. P-R-O-S-O-P-O-N. It's a noun, genitive, singular, neuter. And it means the eye or face. Let me change this a little bit here. Literally, the part toward, at, or around the eye. Hence, the face, countenance, presence, person. Believers will someday be face-to-face with the Lord, but believers will not. They don't care anything about the Lord. They have rejected the Lord. I mean, uh, unbelievers, excuse me. Unbelievers have rejected Him. Uh, They don't want to see Him. They don't want to have anything to do with Him, so they're... The Lord is just going to give them what they want. But let me tell you, to be away from the presence of the Lord is a very scary place. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we have already emphasized that when Jesus Christ returns, Second Advent, it's going to be great news for those who have trusted Christ and for those who have not Woe is them, is all I can say. Unbelievers will miss the glory of the Lord. One can't expect to reject someone or something and then share in the glory of that person or thing. They are rejectors of Christ. And all the glory, we can't even begin to fathom the glory that the Most High, Jesus Christ, when He comes out of the clouds down to planet Earth to regain control... He will have the title deed. We've studied all these things. It's going to be such glory that it's, it's, we can't even fathom what it's going to be like. However, the unbelievers won't share in any of that glory. They will be in horror because Jesus Christ is going to give them justice. He is righteous and He is just and His own justice demands that they be taken off of earth held in the compartment of hell called torments until they will be judged at the great white throne judgment. Verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. We will return to earth at the second advent as the bride of Christ and He will be glorified for what He has done for us. We will have no old sin nature. Our resurrection bodies will be glorious and He will be gloried by, He will be glorified by our glorification. You understand that? And so how can we glorify Christ? The more that we mature spiritually the more that we are able to execute the Christian way of life in our little few years that we have on this planet means that we will be all the more beautiful when we return with Him. 
these decorations and rewards and crowns and all these things will make believers different. We are not going to be the same. Some are going to be much more glorious than others. But the more glorious that we are when we return with Christ, the more He is glorified. Because bottom line, He is the reason that we are glorified. And the more glorified we are, the more glory He, he, he will receive. So we can't take credit for anything. But we have, a de- we have to make a decision. Do we want to be glorified or not? I always go back to our original physical birth. What did you have to say about that one? You didn't even know it was taking place. I mean, you hadn't developed a vocabulary yet. You didn't know how to talk. Uh, I hope none of you will try to explain to me and describe how it was when you were born. I mean, we were there, but we were essentially non-compass mentis. Uh, we, we didn't even didn't know anything. We had no control, no decisions, nothing that we did. Well, I started to say nothing that we did before, but we were not before. We were not until God the Father imputed soul life to us, and we became a living soul. And I, I, don't, I don't know, but I would suspect that most of us, especially you guys, were ugly. They always show in movies, you know, that you can tell things are, are, are Hollywood when they're out in a wagon train and a woman will have a baby and it's just born, they hold it up and it's all pink and cuddly and cute. Uh, I know better than that one. I've seen the reality. Lizards! So we have nothing to do with that. But this is the message that I'm trying to get across to everyone. The decisions that you make now, the more that you grow spiritually, the more that you connect the dots and act upon that, is going to determine what you're going to be like in the next life. Doesn't that, doesn't that grab you? What do you want to be like for all eternity? You have a say. That's what, as we get into verse 11 especially, we're going to say, that's what this is about. A lot of people think, well, I'm going to heaven, and they don't know anything about heaven. They don't know about rewards, decorations. You talk about the Bema seat. You talk about the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, I don't know about that. They don't care about it. But we have no excuse, do we? You are informed. And now the ball is in your court. Does it matter to you? Everybody says, yes, I want to glorify Christ. So they go out there and they hustle. They do all these things. All in the power of the flesh. They don't even know how to be spiritual. And they're not going to glorify Christ. They're going to look like one of those... (laughs) Well, I can't say that, I guess. I was thinking about those hairless dogs. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, or hairless cats. They've got both brands. I mean, <laughs> they're there. They're cats. They're dogs. But I'd just soon not look at them. That's the way a lot of people are going to look like. The brighter we shine, the more glory He receives. We are instruments to mirror His glory. 
Do you want to, do you want to glorify? Everybody says, oh, how I love Jesus. You want to glorify Jesus? Oh, yes. Well, you know, I, I break some bread and took it over to this needy person. Well, that's good. That's great. Were you filled with the Holy Spirit? What's that? That's a pretty dull mirror. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Excuse me. <coughs> we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Now, for a long time, I thought, well, this means that we don't know what we're going to be because our pea brains can't understand all this. But the more that I looked at this and the more I meditated on the thought on it, we don't know what we're going to be like yet because our life isn't over. And we could take a nosedive into reversionism or we might stay the course. You don't know how God is going to be able to use us. And so we, we know that we're children of God. We know that Jesus Christ is going to come back and get us. But it hasn't appeared as yet what we're going to be. The jury is still out. Because you still may have a lot of decisions to make in order to glorify Christ. One thing you cannot do is glorify Christ as an ignorant believer. You can't do it. Can you imagine someone being at the National Spelling Bee and their teacher is so proud and the person gets up and they said, well, can you spell cat? Yeah, K-A-T. Is that going to glorify the teacher? Sorry, that one just popped into my head as an illustration. I'm tempted to tell you about my, what would you call them, nightmares that I had when C.K. Smith III was trying to teach me how to spell. I think I'll do that another time. But I will say this. I did spell cat, K-A-T. What? If you've never been taught... And I wasn't taught. I, I, I spelled phonetically. And when it came to shun, it wasn't T-I-O-N, it was S-H-O-N or S-H-U-N. Vacation, V-A-C-A-S-H-O-N. Oh, that was some long days. I don't know how I got on that. Let's stay on this. Christ will be glorified in, not by, his saints. That is, His glory will be mirrored in them. Christians will marvel in that they will admire their Lord for what He has done in them. All believers will marvel, not just those living on earth and those resurrected when Christ returns, but also those who return to earth with Him, those who have been cut up, caught up to be with the Lord at the rapture. Now, this was by Walford and and, uh, and Zuck, Dallas Theological Seminary, Bible Knowledge Commentary. So everyone, as we're going to see, is going to be very impressed with the glory of Jesus Christ. About the closest hint that we see of the glory of Jesus Christ in the New Testament 
is when he took James, John, and Peter to the Mount of Olives. And he pulled back the covers just a little bit for them to see what he looks like in his glory. And they said it was like looking at the sun in its, in its full brightness. You couldn't even look at it. It was so bright. And we have descriptions of Jesus Christ. We've already gone through this a couple of times in Revelation 19. This is when he's come, come, coming back ready for war, as on the day that the Lord fights. That's what the enemy is going to see, and he will have their attention also. John 17:22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. God gives his glory to us. Actually, what he does is gives, give us the opportunity to be glorified and to reflect his glory. And it's the decisions that you make between now and the time that you check out that are going, that's going to determine your brightness. I think it might be a literal brightness. I don't know. I've, I've said this before. When, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, this is in uh, Genesis chapter 2, and it says, And they knew they were naked. That always puzzled me. They always knew they were naked. I mean, uh, they didn't have a closet. They didn't have any clothes. So why does it say that they knew they were naked? I think that it's possible, this is just a hypothesis, that they had some type of mantle of light. The Bible is loaded with information about light. And as long as they had not sinned against God, they had this certain mantle. But I think when they sinned, they went out, it went out. It was no longer there. And that's why I think they, they said, and they knew they were naked. So I carry that into the eternal realm after believers are rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. It could be that we will all have certain brightness. Again, don't, don't say that this is dogmatically, unequivocally, uh, sound. I'm just saying that this is interesting. And that we will know what each other's rank is by how much we shine. We know that there's a uniform of glory. And the more that you are reflecting Christ's glory, it sounds plausible to me, the more you reflect light, the brighter it's going to be. So take that for whatever you will. When Jesus comes, he will be glorified in his holy people. Christ will not only display his glory, but in some way this glory will be shown in those who belong to him. This is the day Paul had in mind when he wrote, Our light and momentary troubles are, not, are, excuse me, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That is, all of that momentary light suffering. One thing that we were going to see is that the... Thessalonians were suffering. Their friends weren't talking to them anymore. Their families had nothing to do with them. They were not only being ostracized, they were being persecuted. And the temptation was to get back and fall in where they were before. But Paul encourages them to stay the course because the suffering that you're going through now cannot compare with the weight of glory that you're going to receive when Jesus Christ returns. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. The 
the future kept him pressing on in the present. That is why he could say, we do not lose heart in 2 Corinthians 4.16. And this came from the uh, volume 9 of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and this is the Holman New Testament commentary. Jesus Christ will be unbelievably awesome when he returns, and everyone, both believers and unbelievers, will be impressed on that day. There is a literal day assigned that Jesus Christ is going to return. Do you believe that? The Bible says that we are going to be returning with Him. And the current verse that we're studying in verse 10 is explaining how we have the high honor to reflect His glory. You all know that we're going to be higher than angels, don't you? And look what happened when an angel showed up on earth throughout the Bible. What happened? And what did they look like? The people, yeah, just awesome People were astounded at their beauty. And you would have hardened combat troops that would see an angel and they would fall down and shake. Now, positionally, we are already higher than angels. Why? Why are we higher than angels? Because we are in Christ. We are permanently, for all eternity, Intimately identified with Jesus Christ and nothing anyone ever can do to change that. And He is the Most High. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So positionally we're already that way, but we can look in a mirror and say, mm, well, no, it ain't happened yet, but it will happen. And when we return with Jesus Christ, the angels are going to be envious. Why? Because we're going to have a resurrection body likened to His. And what a body that is. So, with regards to Christ, everyone is going to be impressed with Him on that day. The second advent, it will be wonderful for believers, but horrible for unbelievers. Believers will celebrate and unbelievers will lament and gnash their teeth. Those who receive this letter will be among those who marvel when Jesus Christ comes to be glorified at the second coming. And this is... <clears throat> and that's why, look at the end of verse 10. For our testimony to you was believed. The testimony, this is the gospel. He's writing to believers. And that's why those who receive this letter would also be those who would marvel at Jesus Christ. Now, 2 Thessalonians verse 11, oh, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling. You have that underlined, remember? And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. To this end also. To what end? What is he talking about? To the end that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you even though you are being persecuted. That's the end. 
What's important in life? Not only in life, but when you, if you read the Bible cover to cover, what is the overwhelming centerpiece of the Bible? It is Jesus Christ. He needs to be glorified because it's only righteous and just for Him to be glorified. And what we're going to see in what the, the notes that follow is, are you going to come on board or not? He has given you everything necessary for you to be glorified in Him. He's already going to be glorified. He's already passed the test. And now He wants you to join in with Him so that you can be rewarded and glorified throughout all eternity. That's the end He's talking about. Then He says uh, that, you, that we pray for you always. Get the verse here. To this end also we pray for you always. The Greek word for prayer here is prosuchomai, P-R-O-S-E-U-C-H-O-M-A-I. It's a verb. It's a present middle indicative. It means to keep on praying. Present tense, you're to keep on doing it. Indicative mood is the mood of reality. Yes, this is what is to happen. But the middle voice is what's important because the middle voice means that it's reflective. The middle voice here means not only are those that you pray for going to be benefited, you're going to be benefited also. I think part of the glory that we are going to reflect from Jesus Christ is going to have at least some bearing on the amount of prayer that we our time that we spend in prayer for others. Because we are commanded to pray, and it is a it is a is a mighty weapon. And when you pray, and it's in God's will, and you have faith that He's going to see to it, that is what is going to be part of the glorifying process. Here's a few verses that the need for prayer is so imperative. First Thessalonians one two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Look at the all-inclusiveness in this. We give thanks to God always for all of you. What can you say? What can most of us say? Well, we give, we give thanks to God for you sometimes, but not all of you, some of you. <laughs> Isn't that right? But what does the Bible tell us to do? Pray for those who persecute you, those that are nasty to you, those that you really don't like that much. Those are the ones that you are to pray for also. Always for all of you. Romans 1, 9 and 10. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly... I make mention of you always in my prayers. I have people that I pray for, and I've been praying for them for so long. And in some cases, I see nada, nothing happen. But this encourages me. He says, unceasingly. You don't say, well, I'm going to pray, pray for two months, and then that's my limit. God, if you hadn't done it from then, just forget it unceasingly 
Philippians 1, 3 through 4. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Do you, do you see the, occur, the reoccurring consistently, always, unceasingly? You don't give up as far as prayer is concerned. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always labor... Look at that again. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. You know, one thing that happens in prayer, if you're not praying and something happens something good happens, your tendency will be, and this is for all of us, boy, that was lucky, or what did I do for God to give me favor here? Or it's just the luck of the draw, that type of thing. But when you've been praying consistently, what you find is you'll be giving thanks to God for it. Philemon 1.4 I thank God, excuse me, I thank my God always. See that again? Making mention of you in my prayers. I don't see a verse there that doesn't say always, unceasingly, continuing, ongoing thing of prayer. Do y'all pray for other people in this church? Do you pray for everybody in this church? I think that that's something that might be missing. Because this church, like any other Bible church, is under attack constantly. Satan is always, through his minions, trying to put a wedge between us. Trying to get our focus off of what is really important. Have us stop being tolerant of one another. Start majoring in the minors. All these things are constantly upon us. And we need to be praying for each other. Just as we prayed for Sherry. Sherry's in a, is in a, a, a case where she needs added prayer, more prayer. I, can't, I don't even count how many times today I thought about her and sent up a, a little message throughout the day. If you were doing the same thing, I don't know how many people we have here, what, 30 or 40, whatever. Just think how many messages could have been going up every day. I mean, all, all day long for her. In spite of the brevity of this epistle, Paul offers four prayers on behalf of the readers of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, Chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 16. That's a lot of prayer in just three chapters of an epistle, isn't it? Now we get to the meat of it. Oh, wow, I wish it wasn't so late. I'm ready, I'm ready to start romping and stomping. That our God may count you worthy of your calling. We have the word count here. It's axioo, A-X-I-O-O. It's a verb, aorist, active, subjunctive. It means to esteem, to count, or reckon worthy, or deserving. Now, it's the subjunctive part on the end of this that I want you to notice. That he may count you worthy. 
Some believers will be counted as worthy of their calling, but others will not. It all depends on one's attitude towards the living word and the written word. He may count you worthy. The jury's still out for all of us, isn't it? As strong as you may be right now, not a one of us can say, I'm going to be stronger by the end of this year. We can't even say that for tomorrow. We have a similar phrase in verse 5. We just went over. Remember I had you underline it? All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Ephesians 4.1 As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So what does it mean to be counted worthy of calling? We are all called by the gospel, and then we are called to be conformed to the image of God's Son. See, everybody thinks, okay, it's all about the gospel. Gospel, 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 that's all you hear. Nothing wrong with the gospel, nothing wrong in giving the gospel, but that is not the purpose of the church is to just evangelize and that only. Now, I'll give the gospel every Sunday because it goes out, this goes out all over the world on the Internet. Furthermore, I, there's visitors. I don't know if someone might have stumbled in here and not know about grace of God or anything. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is equip the saints for spiritual combat. It's a schoolhouse. So we're called by the gospel, but we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Another way of putting it is we are called to be experientially sanctified. And you should be able to... That ought to just come off your tongue, just like experiential sanctification. Boom, boom, boom. Just real easy. And someone says, what, is it, what does it mean to be experientially sanctified? And you can handle it any way you want to, but if you really won't get down to the bare beans of it, Bare bones. It means to grow up spiritually is what it means because God is going to hold us accountable for the time and the grace and the provision and protection and everything that he affords us. What did you do with it? Christ isn't going to be trotting out our sins at the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to say, I gave you 80 years right here. I gave you all this grace. You had a pastor. You had a church. You had the Bible. You had the filling of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. You had everything. What did you do with it? And there's going to be a lot of people ashamed. They're going to hold their head down. And they're not going to reflect. Then it's not too, it's too late then. Lord, can you just give me a Bible class over here for about a thousand years? I mean, you know, we're in eternity. I mean, that might just be none of that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That says it. That's what I've been talking about. Let's look at this. 
But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers. This is Paul and his team. He's thanking God for these ones, these brothers who are loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in His truth. That's saved there. Is that salvific or no? Every one of you ought to be able to say you know for certain. Is this talking about being eternally saved or not? Hmm? Now, I see you're looking at belief in the truth. I said when you see the word salvation or saved and you see believing in it, most of the time it's talking about being salvific because there's only one, there's only one road to heaven and that is belief, trust. In the Lord. But look at the verse 14. He called you to, to this through this sanctifying work through our gospel. This is not salvific. The work that he's talking about, I mean the belief and the truth, and through belief in the truth, the sanctifying work. We're sanctified already at the moment of salvation positionally, but this is not positional sanctification. This is ex experiential sanctification. See, this, that's where everybody gets off. They think the whole Bible is about going to heaven. No, the whole Bible, or most of it, the great majority of texts, has to do with what we're talking about. Being experientially sanctified, reflecting God's glory. Grow up. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. Well, did He choose you to be saved eternally? Yes. And that's as far as most people go, even believers. But He chose you to be delivered from this world, the flesh and the devil, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. There's more truth than Jesus Christ, faith alone, in Christ alone. There's more truth than that. I'm not trying to minimize that truth, but there's more truth than that. The truth is there's a, there's a whole realm of doctrine that you have to master, you have to learn, you have to be like Joshua. Think about it. Meditate, meditate upon it. When he rises and when he goes to sleep, he's thinking about the Word of God, how to live the life. So being delivered through the sanctifying work of the, of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do you know why most the problem with most believers isn't that they can't understand it. The issue with most of them is that they don't believe it. And you know what's going to happen when you get away from consistently taking in the Word? You're not going to believe what you believe now. You're never stagnant. You don't coast. If you get distracted, something upsets you, and you've had it with God for a while, and you're just going to take a hiatus, you're going to take a vacation, and you think that you'll, you'll, you'll get back in the game at the same point, impossible. Your belief in things that you fervently believe now will take a nosedive if you don't stay focused plugged in and have your spiritual momentum moving forward. And I'm talking about believers here. He called you through our gospel 
Now here it is in this last part. This is summarizing what went right before it. He calls you to this. To what? To the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To be conformed to the image of God's Son. He called you to this through our gospel. Nothing happens until you believe the gospel first that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't want all, He does not want to save us and then for us to mark time and be afraid and be casualties in the angelic conflict. That's not what He wants. He wants us to be conquerors. He wants us to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Who makes that decision? Bottom line, who is responsible for whether you're going to glorify Jesus Christ or not? Well, we do, don't we? But because God has put that on our plate. He's given us volition. What are you going to do with it? He's given us everything that we need, but we, bottom line, make that decision whether we're going to do it or not. How many people do you know that have made that decision and making God's Word, the living and the, and the written Word, their number one priority in life? How many people do you know that, have, that are like that, that have done it? Well, look around. Compared to how many people are in this county, there's not many people here, is there? There are not many people in church tonight. Maybe tomorrow night there might be some. There, if you, I, there might not be anybody else in this whole county, or maybe in more counties around than this one, on a Tuesday night. How many of them are actually getting fed? The focus is on you. By both fallen and elect angels. And your whole destiny is at stake by the decisions that you make. And how many believers have blown it? They got something to watch on TV. They're just too busy to come to Bible class. You cannot glorify Christ if you can't stand firm for the faith, if you don't have enough doctrine to where you can go out and answer the questions of a dying, desperate world, certainly you're not going to be glorifying Christ. And what do most believers do when they're asked questions by both believers and unbelievers alike? What do they do? They try to hide under the covers. Hide under the bed. I'm talking about literally. Have you ever had the Jehovah Witness knock on your door? And you run, hide? What does Christ think of that? These are unbelievers. They desperately need the gospel. And they come to your door and you hide. Now, hey, I'm including me. I've done it. I even done it. I did it one time when the, I was going to be a member of a Baptist church. I had only been married for six months. and went, well, let's go to this big old, huge Baptist church. And the preacher was just the opposite of me. He'd have 14 people line up down here that came and whatever they do when they come and walk down the aisle. And he, could, he, he would name every one of them their first and last name and say where they were from, and he never wrote a note. That's why we were members of that church. We were so impressed with that. That's a good reason, isn't it? Huh? Oh, boy. Anyway, we were living at the New Orleans apartments right in view of the Astrodome at that time. 
on the second floor. And I happened to be by the window, and I looked out, and I saw the preacher, and he was headed for our steps. And we hit the deck. And that was the only time I did that. If I saw some guys riding bicycles with ties, I'd hit the deck. I was good at hitting the deck. Now, I'm not proud of that. But, hey, we're all folks, aren't we? Aren't we all sinners? And I'm sure you have stories. But it's time for the stories to be over. It's time for us to be bold in the Lord Jesus Christ because we might not have much time left. And the decisions that we make now are going to determine what we're going to be for all eternity. We're just practicing for what's next. And the reason so many people are afraid is because they're ignorant. Why do you think so many cults are bulging at the seams because the churches aren't doing their jobs. The pastors aren't. And people want to be coddled and have their ears tickled. They don't want to get down into doctrine. You say experiential sanctification to some people, and they might, have a, they might have a coronary right on the spot. They don't know what you're talking about. And they can change the subject faster than... Well, I have an expression, but I can't use it. They can do it fast. They can change... That's what they usually do. But that's on them. Let's look at... This is wonderful. In these verses right here is what this is all about. Here he's saying, Well, you ought always to give thanks for you brothers loved by the Lord. I could say that same thing about you. Are you loved by the Lord? Absolutely. Are you brothers, sisters? Yes. Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved, delivered, through the world system, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. As you grow, you're here now. The Holy Spirit is hard at work. I'm just giving you words that goes out through the airways, but it's the Holy Spirit that is your true mentor, and He is teaching you these spiritual things so that you won't have to be afraid of the cults and the unbelievers. Listen, let me tell you something. When you know doctrine and someone comes up and they try to tie you in knots and they wind up wanting to get out of there faster than you can think. It's, it's, not, some, it's not a deal of power. It's just being so thankful that you have it together. They don't. They bought the lie. The last time Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house, they came in there and right off the bat, they want to talk about something. I said, let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about being saved. I said... Can a person lose their salvation? Oh, yes, absolutely. I said, fine, show me in the book. And they have some kind of code. They have some kind of glossary or, or concordance or something. Then he turned into some scripture about Hymenaeus and Alexander being turned over, their flesh being turned over to, the devil, uh, to Satan for discipline. There you go. I said, okay. I, that's some, some people getting disciplined. I don't see anything about hell. I don't see anything about I don't see anything about that. And I could see it in his eyes. He knew he was caught. And you know what he did? Well, Henry entered getting late. We I guess it's better time we go. And I want to grab him by the coat. Wait a minute, don't get away. Answer my question. He never did answer the question. But what I'm trying to tell you is to just be able to answer have a simple question like that and say it with absolute certainty. Because there's not a spot 
in the Bible where the eternal life or God's own righteousness is ever revoked. The gifts of God are, is it irrevocable or unrevocable? Irrevocable. He's not going to take them back. It's impossible for him to do it. And when you know that, and all the, most of the people you're going to bump into think that you can lose your salvation and they're working to keep it. And you're saying, hey, I've got news for you. Quit working. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that would be good news? They're out there hustling. Listen, Jehovah's Witnesses hate to get out and go door to door. I know it because I've talked to them one-on-one in confidence. And they finally got to know me enough to where they let their guard down and they said, I hate it. I said, I'd hate it too. I said, I got the good news for you. You don't have to do that. You don't ever have to hit the road again, ever. Larkin Beekman, he was a Jehovah Witness elder. I worked with him over at the ball plant valve in Sealy. And we discussed, I, I, for about a year, every day, work day, I would see him, and we had discussions upon discussions. And I got an email from him. How long ago was that, Carrie? Two weeks ago, a month, something like that. And somehow he found my website. He is no longer Jehovah Witness. And he was lauding me that I was some, a man that was standing for the truth. And when it, we would just, I, we argued about everything. Because we don't believe the same on nearly anything. There's no common ground. That's why it's hard to talk to these people because they're completely opposite of anything that we would think of as orthodox theology. But I just thank God of the pastors that I had that equipped me that I could stand toe-to-toe with him. It wasn't about winning an argument. I couldn't win an argument because... Anywhere I would go, well, I just don't believe that. I said, well, that's fine, but this is what the Word said. I knew what the Word said. And I said, show me. Show me where I have to be good. Show me where I have to work in order to be saved. Show me, because I can show you verses that say just the opposite. I was in a, in a parking lot with a Mormon elder. Had a tent. This was the old Walmart over there. Stumbled in there. I didn't know what it was about. Just, what's this tent about? And I saw... <laughs> I saw that it, well, this, real quick, I could see, oh, this is Book of Mormon laying all over the place. And so I go up to him and I say, well, you know, they start their jargon and all this. I said, let's cut to the chase. I said, what do you have to do in order to be saved? Well, you've got to believe in Jesus Christ. Good. Is that it? Well, no. You've got to be baptized. You've got to go to church. Blah, 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 all this. I said, really? I said, you mean you've got to work, your, you're going to have works to get into heaven? Absolutely. And so I turned to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I said, read that. And he read it. I said, now, that's that it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And we can go to John 3, 36. We can go to Titus 3, 5. We can go to Romans 4, 5. We can go to Romans 6, 23. Where do you want to go? I can show you plenty of places where it says it's not of works. And you're saying it is of works, so explain that to me. He said he had been in the field for 20 years and never saw that verse. Any of those verses. And that is a conviction for the Christians out there. Because instead of taking him to the Word where the verses were, they would run. They would hide. They would avoid. I said, well, what are you going to do? 
I'll get back with you. He got back with me in a letter about a week later. Him and his cronies found about a dozen verses that had, had something to do with works. Of course, none of them had anything to do with salvation. Carrie and I went over there to their house. We didn't know that Mormons were really kooksville when it comes to theology. And we had an interesting discussion then. His wife never said anything until we saw that uh, something about uh, saved through the water and the blood. So being saved through, <clears throat> what was it, the, the Scripture um, that we sh uh, it has to do with uh, the Spirit uh, being uh, born of the Spirit and born of the water. And she was talking about baptism. Because when I said, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, she, had, she just went berserko. That's when she piped up. And she went to that verse. I said, I don't see anything about baptism there. Where's the baptism? Well, it says water. Well, I said, let's go to verse on the Red Sea. You want to, is that baptism too? Anyway, that was an eye-opening. Well, I'm past time. I'm sorry for going over. But uh, I want you to... We're going to get to this verse soon enough because we're in 2 Thessalonians. And when we get, when we get, when we get into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, how many of you know about chapter 2? Anybody? This is uh, a very interesting chapter. And this is part of it. So anyway, I'm out of time. Let's, let's close. Father, we're so thankful that you have called us not only to salvation for eternal salvation, but also to be experientially sanctified. You've given us the high honor to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. This life is so brief. And when people start asking what it's about, it's about fulfilling the mandate to be conformed to the image of God's Son. It's about growing up spiritually. It's about connecting the dots so that we can have the abundant life that God wants us to have, that you want us to have, so that you can glorify us for all eternity. Whenever we get discouraged, depressed, down and out, help us to remember the great opportunity that you have afforded us. And we still have breath, so we still have time to make the most of it. And we thank you for this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.